Hello and welcome to Wealth of Nations for Euromoney podcast series. My name is Chris Wright and I'm interviewing the leaders of some of the most significant and interesting sovereign wealth and pension funds in the world. This is the second part of our interview with Joe Taylor, President and CEO of Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, the $241.6 billion Canadian dollar pension fund entity. As we learned in our last episode, Teachers has a history of innovation that has made it a pioneer in new asset classes with an influence that can be felt around the world. It is nimble and bold, but does it work? The most recent results for the plan suggest it does. The 2021 results showed an 11.1% net return for the year, with a total of 5.5 billion Canadian dollars of value added to the fund. The plan was fully funded for a ninth straight year, and it can now boast an annualised total fund net return of 9.3% a year for 10 years, and 9.7% annually since inception in 1990. So how was that achieved? We had actually pretty good performance across virtually all of our asset categories. Again, private equity performed very strongly. It made about a 30% return. But, you know, we made 40% in our venture growth business. We made great returns on the infrastructure side. Um, I think what was pleasing for me about 2021 was it was an active year. We made over 50 investments. We made investments in some great companies around the world in many countries we continue to build out our infrastructure base, which is one of the things I mentioned earlier, which we're keen to see more exposure to real assets as an alternative to fixed income. And um, I think actually the other thing that is pleasing for me is our conversion rate of deals we want to invest in and the ones we actually close. You know, when we actually have a reasonably good conversion rate in a competitive market, I think you can see the team's doing quite well. Yes, indeed. Now, infrastructure, and I suppose this is true broadly of all private markets, there is perhaps a tendency when people talk about difficult investment circumstances to think of private markets as something of a magic bullet. Okay, public markets are challenged for whatever reason, that's fine, we'll do private markets, which is fine as far as it goes, but you still have to get it right. Uh, And an environment of, I think, intense competition for assets, which is surely uh, only becoming more Uh, intense by the year. Now, how do you deal with that, making sure that you still find good assets at good value when everybody else seems to be seeking exactly the same idea? Well, brutal honesty, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you just find that uh, there's a wall of money chasing the same opportunities and and as a result, valuations look pretty pretty challenging. And I think that was absolutely the case last year. Um, There's a lot of money that's been raised for private equities, I'm sure you know very well. And that leads us to really trying to reflect on um, what value do we see in businesses. So to try and answer your question, I think you've got a better chance of really calibrating value if you understand the growth possibilities of the business. And the best way to do that is to actually have a reasonably good sector understanding as well as company understanding of how that business sits in its world or its sector is it going to be truly disruptive? Will it be a leader in its business? Should you pay a premium for that business? Or is it one essentially a me too business, which may be acquired as a good outcome, but probably isn't going to be premium, premium valuation for the future? Um, second issue I think you have to decide is what's your hold time frame. So one of our other big differences to private equity firms is we, we invest our own capital. It's patient capital. We can own a business for 15 years quite happily. Um, Busy Bees, say, in the UK, which is the, one of the first businesses I got involved when I joined Teachers, 
I think we've owned that business now 10 years and, you know, it's an example of a company, you know, where, you know, we don't come in and out in a couple of years trying to sort of make a short-term gain. Um, I think the other point is when valuations are full and challenging, I guess it comes back to what's your plan for the business? What are you doing that's going to make it a better company? And have you got that conviction that either through acquisitions or international growth or new product launches, you can actually build something that's going to be more desirable or more valuable to others? Um, Because if you can't do that, you're really just relying on market growth for that sector, which may or may not be the answer to to your challenges. I'd say, just to be honest, I'd say if you look at life at the moment, I think private equity valuations are quite challenging when you compare some sectors to their listed counterparts. They haven't really corrected to quite the same extent as public markets, and that's mainly because of the amount of money chasing private equity opportunities. We saw something very similar after the uh, global financial crisis in 08. took about a year to 18 months to see valuations level off a little bit. And I suspect we're in a similar mode today for the private equity world. One of the more intriguing parts of the Ontario Teachers Asset Allocation Mix is a division called the Teachers Innovation Platform, recently rebranded as Teachers Venture Growth. This is, broadly speaking, a venture capital piece of the business, but conducted more directly than the private equity positions might do. In 2021, for example, it led a $375 million Canadian dollar Series D fundraising round for Reply Board, an online platform for students, participated in the $420 million US dollar B1 funding round for FTX Trading, which owns FTX.com, a crypto exchange, and led to the $138 million US dollar Series C fundraising for Beamery, a talent operating system. We're really looking to help high-growth private companies to really develop their capability where you can have an investor like ours with significant capital. And we can actually do a couple of things. We can give the business a much longer runway in terms of its cash funding, which allows it to do more things before it goes back to a, um, another funding round. So for investors already in those businesses, that's quite attractive. To be honest, we can also take it beyond... Um, the point where it becomes cash flow positive and actually a self-sustaining business. So we can essentially be an alternative to an IPO, say, as a, as a source of capital for those types of businesses as we invest. Um, we also have a strong network of not only investors in our TVG team around the world, but also a portfolio we're building, not, not only in TVG, but also in our private equity and other private assets. So We've got a big community that those businesses can work with to help them internationalize or get into new markets, which I think is also seen to be pretty attractive. But there is another feature which I think is really not known. And you asked me about innovation, so I thought I'd answer it if I may. Um, so what we also developed um, is, a, is a, uh, essentially an incubator called Kuru in our business. And what Kuru does, it works with all of our portfolio companies to actually say are there parts of what you do where actually if it was uh, if it remains in the, the the company itself it probably won't get the attention or the capital that will really allow it to become a, a big opportunity and uh, we get our portfolio companies to come in and with their new ideas and their new areas of technology just really say is it a spin-out opportunity where you could develop it into 
a separate business. So to give you an example of that, um, there's a business called Field, which is what was a part of SGN, uh, which is a gas distribution network we have in the UK looking after London and Scotland. And that business actually uses AI technology to look at health and safety issues around the network of people in the field looking at, you know, pipes and electricity wires and things of that type. And now that's turned into a really interesting independent business where I think it will actually turn into something substantial. Um, and we've done that several times with other companies as well. So I think that's a way where, again, our innovative thinking allows us to say, how do we actually work with our business to create more value for, for all of the investors? And actually, to some extent, there may be some investors who really like that idea. There may be some who are less keen. And then you can change the ownership profile of that spin-out company as well as it goes forward. In the next section, I ask about some specific deals. Here's the ones we talk about. In May 2021, teachers in KKR each acquired a 20% holding in Karuna, Finland's largest electricity distribution company, with a binding agreement to buy a further 40% between them from OMAS, another Canadian pension fund. In July 2022, teachers completed the acquisition of Home Equity Bank, a Canadian reverse mortgage provider. And in June 2022, Teachers Venture Growth, the venture capital arm of teachers we just discussed, led a $120 million Series C funding round for Evolved by Nature. That's a company that is creating a proprietary library of molecules from natural silk protein, aiming to reduce the reliance on petrochemicals. It's good to talk about some specific instances, and I might invite you to talk about some recent deals and what they represent about how teachers goes about things. Uh, you can take this any way you want, really. I mean, in my, in my mind, I have things like Karuna in Finland or the recent home equity acquisition, uh, or maybe some of your early stage work like Evolved by Nature. But, but, but take your pick. Just tell me something that illustrates some themes uh, for teachers. Yeah, so... Um Maybe I can pick all of them off. I'll try and be as succinct as I can because I could talk for a long time on this. <laughs> but um, if, I, if I took infrastructure, um, you know, we're well known actually for transportation assets. You know, we have five airports. We have a lot of road, uh, tow road uh, um, investments around the world in, in India and the States as well as in Europe. So actually what we were quite interested in was building on our electricity distribution activities um, above and beyond what we have in Chile, uh, where we have uh, quite, quite a few companies doing that. Um, so, you know, we, we therefore chose to do Karuna, which was actually an interesting opportunity for us in, um, in, uh, in Finland, as you mentioned. We also did uh, Puget Sound, which is one in Washington State, providing uh, uh, electricity distribution. We also were looking at N-Wave in, in Canada as a, as a sort of a base heating opportunity for, for companies over here. So broadening out the um, infrastructure portfolio into other types of assets was quite interesting. And then the other thing within infrastructure, which we really like, are su sustainable assets. So things like Next Era and Corio, both of which are in you know, new sustainable assets. And I thought what was interesting about those investments were those companies picked us as the one partner they want to work with. So they're willing to share part of their development portfolio of really interesting assets to use our capital to allow them to have more leverage, more extension in what they do. And they were pretty choosy about who they wanted to bring in as a partner who's not only knowledgeable, but also had the capital to make sure it was really a, a full level of leverage for them. 
I would like to pick up home equity banks. It's quite an interesting investment. Um, that's in our private equity uh, portfolio. And actually, what's interesting there is whilst reverse mortgages are probably more familiar in, in the UK, it's really the only business operating in Canada of its scale and size. It has the what they call the chip mortgage CHIP, which is actually quite well publicized and understood in, in Canada. And I think for the Canadian market, where there'll be the continuation of that theme, essentially the younger generation wondering around affordability of housing, it does allow parents to use that as a vehicle to sort of help them get on the property ladder and actually give them some capital to do that or equally just to have an equity release for them to be able to go and enjoy their retirement. And that's an area we understand very well, obviously, because of our association with retired teachers and all the work we do around pensions. Um, and then maybe picking up the, the other one, I mean, you mentioned Evolve by Nature, so maybe I'll just say a couple of comments about that. Um, I mean, that's an interesting business in that it's a Series C round, so it's $120 million that was raised. We led that round. And what we liked about it was, one, it's a green company. So it's essentially using um, proteins coming out of silk molecules to be able to create novel um, ways of dealing with textile products, but also to go beyond that and use it in skincare and some therapeutic areas. So it's got quite a broad application. Um, it's one of those things, it's in Boston, it's got a great manufacturing facility that they're building out, which was using part of our capital. But I see that as one of those businesses where you look at it and say, that could be a really disruptive company because a lot of it, what it's doing, there's, you can see the demand side for it. You know, it's novel, it's actually, um, it's advantageous in terms of how it interacts with us and actually it's green. So you could see how it plays to those, those agendas too. It's hard to summarize all 50 investments we made, Chris, last year. Um, you know, we're very fond of many of them. I think the theme I would probably try and pull out if I could is that, you know, we cover a broad church of activity from high risk early stage companies to, you know, real estate, not, not so risky. But in each case, what we're, what we're trying to look for are market-leading companies where actually they've got strong growth characteristics and also have the ability to weather variations in the market, which we may see coming up through you know, higher interest rates, recession, et cetera. And to me, the way you do that is you actually pick businesses where there's a strong syndicate of investors, they're leading in what they do, and you can understand the future growth. So that's the thing we look at most, most carefully. Yes, yes. And given what you said about impact earlier, it would be remiss not to ask you about renewables or sustainability as a theme. So I might ask you to touch on one more deal, actually, which is the uh, partnership with uh, Corio Generation, ultimately part of the Macquarie Group, I think, on uh, offshore wind development. A couple of things come from that. Firstly is the renewable theme itself. But also, I think this also speaks to the idea of partnership when groups get to your level of scale, but still wish to work with other partners to, to actually sort of make things happen, to develop assets rather than just uh, invest in them yourself. So, so tell me a little more about that. Well, the first thing to say is, you know, we've partnered with Macquarie on a number of uh, opportunities over the years. We originally were in Sydney Airport with them, and then we spanned some of that investment out to uh, Copenhagen and Brussels Airport, where again, we're working with Macquarie on, on those two, two assets. Um, so we have a long history of a partnership. 
and that that does help when they're thinking about who to pick for this type of uh, this type of investment. The other thing is, you know, actually what Corio is doing, you know, essentially, if you look at what we'll invest in with that billion dollars, it's it's a portfolio of, of both fixed and floating projects for wind power in multiple countries, you know, so in South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, Ireland. So again, you want an international investor that can actually be present, helpful and able to add value around the, all of those activities. I think the other thing is, you know, they've seen uh, what we've been doing in the sustainable asset field for a little while. And for us, I think um, we do want to build uh, a green portfolio, as you might describe it, including sustainable assets. You know, we have about 30 billion of sustainable assets as it stands in the portfolio. We're looking to build on that. I think the challenge with sustainable assets, if I pick one, if I make Chris, is because it's such a popular area for all investors who want to actually build a sustainable portfolio, is trying to find opportunities where you, you get the right price point for the risk that you're taking. So if I give you an example of an offshore wind project, one of the big questions with those projects is not only the, the regularity of the wind and the ability to sort of connect it into the grid, it's actually the future maintenance cost of those assets as they sit in the sea with all the wear and tear that goes with that. And in a, lot, in a lot of cases, we're not too sure what that's going to look like in 10, 15 years' time because the project's just going to be developed. So actually trying to see that that's covered in your returns that you're making on the investment, I think, is important so that you can say you're not going to be disappointed if you find that that maintenance costs way higher than you thought in 10 years' time. And for us, we would like to own these assets for 30 years, you know, so it's not that we would sell out before the, the risk occurs. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, one wants to be backing the right technologies and assets, of course, but uh, one also needs to make the risk-reward equation, as you've said. Is part of the answer of this to move up the curve of development, to be involved earlier in the process, put equity in earlier, maybe get a better margin by being there from the start? It can be that, um, a very astute point. Um, I, I think the challenge with earlier stages, who's involved on the construction side? Are they a known, reliable um, a contractor, so to speak, on the project? Um, the area where everyone's had huge issues around this point has been nuclear, right? So, you know, you don't know what it costs to build a nuclear reactor, and it often costs a lot more than you think. And then you still have the decommissioning question at the back end. So that possibly that's a good way of highlighting an infrastructure project that is quite challenging to sort of figure out the costs associated with it, What, despite the operating life of the project. Um, I guess for us... What we're trying to do is some of that move earlier in the, the process, but also look at new technologies that actually will be really disruptive. So we're very active in hydrogen. Um, we think that's an interesting area. We're very active in methane capture, which we think is one of the most uh, negative emission gases uh, in, in terms of the climate. Um, we're also looking at things like fusion and, and other areas in terms of trying to say, will they be able to provide some you know, new sources of sustainable power. It, it's an interesting area because I would say, you know, most people think of infrastructure as a fairly traditional, quite dull asset class, where actually, you know, you get paid on a long-term basis for fairly no returns. And that is in, in the main industry. But I think increasingly, 
there are some new interesting areas which I think if you look at it now, would look like a relatively high-risk infrastructure project, but probably in five years' time won't because it will actually be commissioned with government as part of their baseload or other things. And that's perhaps one way to think about it. You know, where is the industry going? And can you actually get into some projects which over a period of time will morph into a much lower risk category. The, 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 the example I would give of one that's really changed in my mind over time are data centers. So if you look at data centers 20 years ago, it was very much a, a high risk private equity type of asset category, whereas now everybody looks at it as a quasi real estate come infrastructure type of rate of return because you know the customers are contracted and it's really just the utilization question that you're looking at or to some extent the build cost of the uh, of the project yes and uh, to conclude as we look forward we are in uh, rather uncertain times people are dealing with inflation and rising rates for the first time in many years but are we looking at a new normal a whole different environment for funds like yours to navigate or uh, do things eventually revert to something more familiar do you think well, I'll stick my neck out a bit here and say that um, my guess would be what we've experienced over the last 10, 15 years may not be what we see over the next 10. Um, I think reasons to say that are in part, you know, what we can see around inflation and rising interest rates and some sort of structural questions that are affecting everybody. But I do think that COVID has changed a lot of things where I don't think we've really fully worked through what they are. But to give you some examples, um, the people's expectation of where they work, how they work, how long they work is is, is certainly evolving. Um, I would say that the supply chain approach to businesses is changing significantly from just in time to just in case or much more locally orientated um, availability. Um, I think there are some sectors which are, have been heavily disrupted and will continue to stay disrupted as a result of COVID. And that is giving opportunities for new entrants to really shake up those sectors and those markets. And again, if I pick one, and this is a difficult one to work out whether it's a passing issue or it will be sustainable but I do think the world from a geopolitical basis is much more bi-local or, or sourced locally so for us as an international investor that creates some challenges if not areas for reflection where we say how do we operate in the countries where we want to be based and so we picked about 10 countries out of the 50 we operate in regularly and say Let's actually look as local as we can, have a very clear strategy of how we're going to partner and operate in those, those territories. And more than anything, we need to have excellent relationships with those governments so that they feel we are an asset in the financial community rather than a threat or an unknown quantity. This has been a Euromedy podcast written and recorded by Chris Wright with editing by Stefan Inglis.